Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Nicole Kirby. We're all familiar with the image of the lone male scientist, solitary, obsessed with his work and a little bit crazy. If you had to name a well-known female scientist, you might think of Marie Curie, who famously discovered radiation, or Jane Goodall, primatologist and expert on chimpanzees. If you saw the recent film The Imitation Game, the mathematician Joan Clark, who helped decipher encrypted messages in World War II, might spring to mind. But the household names of women scientists fairly quickly dry up. This week on Women on the Line, we look at women in science, what gains have been made and what are the current barriers to achieving gender equality in the sciences. I speak with Cathy Foley, Chief of the CSIRO's Science and Engineering Division. We also speak with Kate White, author of the recent book Keeping Women in Science. And later on the show, we speak with University of Sydney biologist Rosalind Glogue, who tells us what it's like for women scientists at the coalface. First, here's Cathy Foley. I asked her why it was important to have gender diversity in science. When we're looking at decision-making... Having a diversity of views, of which you know, diversity is, comes in many ways, from personality, uh, gender, as well as cultural background, that having diversity of views really means that we make better decisions. And a lot of you know, good research is all about making decisions. And having that richness of diversity is, will lead to us having much better outcomes. And so you mentioned that Australia hasn't really made great inroads in terms of having women represented at the upper levels of sciences. But I mean, if we take a longer view of this, say over the last century, of course, there's been huge changes in how much we've Uh, seen. Absolutely. So at what point has the development sort of stalled, do you think? So I think it's not so much stalled. I think we have to say it's sort of fragile. So we had at one stage many women in um, senior positions who are um, actually... Um, able who've been in, you know, like um, Megan Clark, head of CSIRO, and uh, and uh, Margaret Shields, who is head of the Australian Research Council, uh, and and we've had you know numbers of women in very senior positions, and then what we see is uh, their position, their time ends, and then the next point is when they come up and uh, be replaced. It, it's very rare we have uh, a woman replacing another woman. And, and then it might take some time before you see someone else being considered in that, that higher role. So we're just not seeing that ongoing continuity. Of um, We had a period of time where just about every senior role in science was, was had a female in it, and then they all finished their term, and then no one's there for you know, maybe even a decade or something. So that's, that's, that's at that very higher level. In the you know, middle management, Mm. We just there's a range of things. You might have peaks and troughs depending on um, you know just what I guess number well the number of people that apply who are females and whether they're successful or not. And so there's a little bit of supply. There's a little bit of unconscious bias. There's a little bit of women not putting their names forward. The women that have taken those leadership positions, and I suppose you're one of them, are exceptions to the rule in a way. Would that be would that be fairly accurate? So, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, to some extent you could sort of say exceptions or maybe it's more to say early early trailblazers, I think, might be a better description. So, mm. so as you said, you know, if you look at the big picture uh, over a long period of time, there's been some definite improvements. And I think we are seeing ongoing improvements. So there's 
a generation of women coming through who are getting the support I think that's needed to allow them to have a career, have a family, and have a you know a lifestyle which is is um, livable and without huge amounts of um, I don't know stress and expectation that they can't deliver on. So we've got that sort of support coming through, and I think you will see in time. Um, and we're talking about generational change. We'll see the numbers of women willing to put their hands up and in a bit, and in the position to being available in the next ten years. So I'm sort of hopeful on one level, so long as the support is remaining. What I've noticed is though, you have initiatives that come and go, and when they're there, things go really well. But as soon as that support is taken away, you see everything drop down to a sort of a baseline. Okay. So what are the structural and cultural supports that can be put in place to support women in the sciences? So one of the things is a scientist usually has to have um, travel, sometimes have to work odd hours, those sorts of things. So one one thing is actually having support for childcare so that they're able, and, and also money into extra childcare when they need it. That is something that's pretty critical. And then the next thing is uh, and, and so that's a cost. And some places like the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, the WEHI, they've actually had a program that's been really successful in providing extra childcare support. Uh, returning to work, so women take time off to have children and coming back into the workforce is tricky. And sometimes, you know, their jobs have disappeared or they're coming back in and uh, there are you know, extra costs involved and often they're doing this at a time when their salaries aren't particularly stellar. And so having uh, some support with return to work uh, is, is, I think, really useful. And I know the University of New South Wales has had a, a program for some time now where regardless of the role, I think you get $10,000 to just help you returning to work with the extra costs. Whether it, and I'm not sure what the limitations are and what they can be used for, but just the fact that they're investing in that. And just for and, female um, scientists. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the other is um, the whole thing of uh, trying to build a, um, a network or a culture that gives women the permission to put their hand up and feel confident that they will be supported when they go into a leadership role or take that extra um, step uh, to you know, contribute beyond what they currently are. And knowing that they can do that in a, in a you know, sort of a culture of safety or with one which is um, one where they're supported so that that gives them, the, I, I suppose, um, uh, uh, motivation and, and, and reassurance that, you know, they won't end up in a situation where they feel damaged or, um, you know, something happening so that it's a negative experience. Mm. Does science still have a blokey culture? Look, it's patchy. You'll find in some areas it is, and in other areas it's really different. What you find is the groups that have uh, particularly good gender and, um, and racial diversity usually don't have a blokey culture. The ones which tend to have um, more, you know, a lot of senior males do. Look, I, I guess this is a complex issue, and it's really important that we talk about it because we're missing 50% of the opportunity of having you know, popular, you know, our human, full human capacity being used to be able to you know, sort of solve big problems to have the best outcomes for the investment in science. And so that's where I'm coming from is saying as, you know, as humans need to make sure they're making the most of what, what we've got and we're at the moment not doing that. And that's, I think, a lost opportunity.
That was Cathy Foley, Chief of CSIRO's Material Science and Engineering Division. You're listening to Women on the Line, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Nicole Kirby. Despite historic and entrenched disadvantages, women have made great contributions to sciences, although those achievements have not always been recognised. Take, for instance, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, astrophysicist from Cambridge University. Burnell discovered the radio pulsar, which has been described as the greatest astronomical discovery of the 20th century. For her discovery, her supervisor and his colleague were awarded the 1974 Nobel Prize in Physics. Burnell was admitted as a recipient of the prize. It's just one example of how women have been sidelined in science. But perhaps things have changed. On Women on the Line this week, we look at the field of science and the challenges for female researchers carving out a career. Next, Dr Kate White, author of Keeping Women in Science and Adjunct Associate Professor at the Federation University Australia. Well, welcome to Women on the Line, Kate White. Thanks very much for joining us this week to speak about women in science. You've recently published a book, Keeping Women in Science, and it talks about the the challenges for women being represented at higher levels in science. Why is gender equality in science important? It's important because at the moment you have got an over-representation of women as doctoral students and an under-representation of women as research fellows and in senior management. The leadership is really male, predominantly or in some cases exclusively male. Um, That then has an impact on the way that science is done. We want a number of different perspectives to solve issues So you want to recruit from a variety of different locations around the world or experiences, and you want to recruit a variety of genders. So then you can get the best triangulation and ideas to solve problems. So it's in an institute's interest to have diversity. So it's the argument about diversity that comes with um, women achieving some sort of a critical mass in leadership positions in science research institutes. Um, And that's a really interesting question in itself. And I suppose as we go on, we're talking about women in science here. But this is actually a good point to also acknowledge that gender diversity is broader than that. And when we're talking about gender equality in science, we're also talking about the representation of diverse genders as well. Yes, indeed. Mm. And, and that's a diversity that actually enriches scientific research from, from the findings that I've been reading. Yes, it, it certainly does. What we've seen as well in the research is that I think that um, men and women's careers tend to keep pace until they're about in their 30s, but then women will tend to, careers will tend to stagnate or they will leave science while men will continue to rise and their career trajectory will continue and if women stay in there after they've got to their 40s or 50s, they, they will tend to be quite successful. But actually, you just see a lot, a lot of women leave at that point. So what you've been mentioning as well is integral to this is families and having a kind of work-life balance, I guess. 
Um, but is there a sense to which we're putting the onus of child rearing on women um, and not on men? And, and, you know, culturally, is this a cultural barrier that exists more broadly in society? Well, you've got to stop considering work-life balance as a personal issue. It's not. It's an issue for the institutions. Um, they've got to take this on board and acknowledge that both men and women may wish to have more flexible work arrangements because while an institution continues to consider work-life balance as a personal issue for women, women are positioned as outsiders and continue to be positioned as outsiders. Um, One of the other things that I argue in the book is that we've got to reconstruct the definitions of a successful scientist. I've described the successful scientist in the book as the monastic male. It implies that this person has no other responsibilities in their life other than to do the science. And we know that's a myth because people do have relationships and friends and family, extended family. Um, So we've we've got to change that definition of what a successful scientist looks like because it's a male construct. That that idea about the successful scientist as a sort of, um, yeah, solitary man who's kind of obsessed with his work and absolutely consumed by his work and everything else is sort of a red herring to the, the main project, that's culturally quite a strong idea. But how strong, how pervasive is that idea? How much does that actually feed into universities and institutions and inform work culture? It's very pervasive indeed. Um, It's surprising just how that, how difficult it is to shift that definition of a successful scientist. There's some really fabulous work being done on this at the moment in, in the European Union countries and some... Um, initiatives to change that definition and to to put gender into into science research to mainstream gender in science research in the EU. Um, <clears throat> one of the other things in moving forward is that we need to look more closely at the careers of women science researchers across the life course, particularly during that rush hour that you've described when career and family collide often in their early 30s, because what my research has demonstrated is if women are supported during that period, um, they can remain in science research and they can um, uh, maintain their productivity. Uh, If you look at their 40-year or so career in science research, the fact that they may go part-time to have a child or two children, um, is a very small chunk of time from an extended career. So we need to look at careers across the life course and not just focus in on when they're they're having children and, and they have career interruptions. That was Dr Kate White, author of Keeping Women in Science. On 3CR Radio Melbourne and around Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Women on the Line and I'm Nicole Kirby. Next, we speak with biologist Rosalind Glogue, 
She's a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney, and she tells us what it's like being an early career research academic. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Sydney. I finished my PhD two years ago now, so I'm what they would call an early career researcher. I'm a, I'm a field biologist, effectively, although for various reasons now I've had to kind of switch to doing more lab work, and obviously that has come with having a baby and you just can't be running around in the field anymore. Yeah, and you had your first baby nine months ago. So you're at the point in your career that researchers have identified is the challenging point at which women in science often see their careers plateau or they drop out of science while men continue to progress along their own career. Do those trends and challenges ring true to your own experience? Uh, I I do agree with that, yeah. I, I think just generally for men and women... This um, period of the of the kind of standard scientific career path is the most difficult. So you finished your um, your apprenticeship, so to speak, during your PhD, um, and you need to go forth now and kind of make uh, a name for yourself as a scientist and build up your credentials further and and um, and perhaps specialize more or depends depends a little bit on your field, but. Um, you know, you at this point have no option but usually to join the lab um, of more established scientists and you might work on their projects for a little bit. Um, or if you're very lucky like me, you may have a fellowship where you're allowed to be a little bit more independent in your research. But in either case, you've got short contracts of two or three years um, and then you need to apply again for another short contract of two or three years and it might continue for, like that for a little bit until you've built yourself um, enough of a kind of uh, reputation and track record that you can you can justify um, a more stable employment. And uh, so men and women, like I said, this is a really difficult uh, phase, I think. But then it just happens to coincide, I think, for most women with the age, you know, kind of late 20s, early 30s, when um, they're interested in starting a family, and, of course, everything just slows down. It just has to slow down. So, um, yes, I, I definitely feel that I'm in that spot now where uh, this is when I really need to be proving myself. Um, and it's also when I just can't commit as much time to work um, as I have previously. So, yes, that definitely rings true. And I think, um, as I mentioned, I, I'm a field biologist, so the type of biologist generally who would be out um, collecting data from the real world, you know, muddy boots, um, w- walking through the bush. There really isn't that many ways I can do that with a tiny baby. So um, I really do have to put my research on hold uh, because science is very much like what have you done lately <laughs> sort of um, culture. So you really need to be um, performing and producing um, all the time. And that. That culture is just—it's uh, just a little bit at odds with the, the inevitable slowing down of things. 
for for women who start families. So, mm. yeah, I think that's the that's the little cultural shift that's needed. Um, certainly in the sciences, there's this premium put on um, getting experience uh, overseas or getting experience at the very least um, interstate and that sort of thing, uh, which is fine. But um, at some point in your life, people want to kind of stay still and it's very difficult, I think, to expect young researchers, and again, it's the, it's part of the funding model, to pick up their life and move to a new lab in a different country or a different city every three years um, throughout their 30s. So hmm. uh, that puts off a lot of people and maybe it puts off women more than men. Maybe women are just better able to take a step back and, and say, this is like, this is not a good quality of life. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> mm. um, that sounds like there's also some structural issues at play. And you also mentioned earlier about the grant cycles and how um, at the end of your three-year contract, you would then be required to apply for a new contract. So there's been a little bit of discussion around the way that funding arrangements work in Australia and that they tend to work to three-year cycles. So because that's a relatively short time frame, I understand that that sort of amplifies the time the cost of the time out that people might take for childcare um do you think there are sort of structural problems like that 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 amplify the difficulties of managing work and life balances yeah i mean i think the um the short yeah short grant cycles um low job stability all those sort of things they they actually probably affect men and women, but as you say, um, for women who are just beginning that period of, um, of having kids and there's inevitably going to be time out, um, yeah, I think things get a little bit more stressful. I think it does a massive disservice to science as well, frankly, because obviously like research and the progression of ideas doesn't happen in neat little three-year nuggets. So um, who knows how many countless ideas, you know, or brilliant innovations get to that um, important point when somebody is two and a half years into their funding and for whatever reason, if they just haven't quite, you know, haven't quite got enough um, to show for it, then they won't get the next round of funding and, and often those people have no choice or they'll, they'll go on to a different project or something and... You know, it's terribly inefficient, really, really, really inefficient. And are there people and structures that have supported you as a scientist in progressing and getting through this difficult part of the of your career? Um, well, I have uh, a fantastic mentor who is one of the co-leaders of my, uh, my lab in the School of Biological Sciences at University of Sydney. And uh, she is a fantastic scientist and and does manage the work-life balance really well and has been extremely supportive of my career. So I think um, mentorship of young women from either um, more senior researchers who are women or more senior researchers who are men um, is a really important way to help young women through the system. I think the universities generally... Um, as employers are aware also of the problem and want to uh, do things that can help. And the University of Sydney does have some special 
um, funding avenues for women who've had to take a long period of time out because it's not just a childcare actually, but the other big one for women is just carer responsibilities generally. So mm. um, when you get to an age where your parents are elderly and that sort of thing, then those responsibilities can also um, impact on your ability to work full time and so on. Mm. So the university does acknowledge all that and um, and that those responsibilities can be felt more by women than men and they you know, do have a few initiatives to try and help women get back into scientific careers if they've had a period out. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was... Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably have to say that up until, um, you know, 18 months ago when I fell pregnant, I really didn't experience at any point during my education um, or, or that very early post-PhD phase, did not ever experience discrimination. And I really feel like it's, um, it's only now, and I wouldn't call it discrimination, but I just say that now... Um, that I have started a family, I can suddenly see that it is more difficult. It's going to get more difficult now and that I have um, I have challenges that I uh, would not have if I hadn't, you know, you know, taken the maternity leave and, and, and the part-time work and all the, all the rest that comes with starting a family. So um, I think in a lot of ways the system does great up until this, phase when things get complicated and I don't know that there's an easy fix. I really feel like it's a kind of, it's something quite deep and cultural embedded in just our general, the general way we live and work and and the differences between men and women. So, mm. um, yeah, I feel like it's going to be something that changes slowly over generations. That was Dr Rosalind Glogue, postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Thanks to the guests on today's program. Cathy Foley, Chief of the CSIRO's Materials Science and Engineering Division. Kate White, author of Keeping Women in Science. And Rosalind Glogue, postdoctoral research fellow in biology at the University of Sydney. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support for the commun- from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at hotmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from the website www.3cr.org.au slash womenontheline. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Nicole Kirby. I hope you can tune in again next time. <laughs>